All right, my friends, let's open up together. Uh, go back to the book of Romans. We've been in Romans the past few months. Romans chapter 15 today. Romans chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one in the pew back in front of you. Uh, we would love for you to open that Bible up with us. Um, if you need a Bible, take that blue one home with you. Uh, please let that be our gift to you today. Uh, we'd love for you to have that. If you know somebody who needs a Bible, take that blue one. We love giving away those Bibles. We love giving away those Bibles. Do us a favor. Um, Romans chapter 15. Romans is toward the back of the Bible. It's a letter written to a church in the city of Rome. Uh, one of the first churches in existence. Um, Romans chapter 15. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know there's a trying, a very difficult situation in this church. You've got a group of Christians who believe you can eat meat, sacrifice to pagan gods. That's okay, because pagan gods are nothing. You've got a group of believers who, who say, I can eat meat. And you have a group of believers who, coming from a Jewish background, says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't eat that kind of meat. We need to just be vegetarians just in case we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And this, these differences of opinions have led to tension, so much so that one side is despising the other, one side is mocking the other, they don't know what to do. It's, these opinions are threatening to, to tear the church apart. And so for the last several weeks, we've been asking, how do churches disagree to the glory of God? How do churches disagree to the glory of God? And my friends, there is more tension and disagreements over opinions in the American church now maybe more than any other time in our lifetime. Do you feel that? You see that? I don't have to tell you that. We've spent these last few months together going through these last few chapters of the book of Romans, and, and some of the good news is this. Maybe this is a little comforting. It's a little comforting to me. What we've discovered in the last several chapters is that this situation that we find ourselves in of, of, of tension in church over opinions, these, this situation is not unique. Disagreements over the non-main and plain things, like the, the non-main and plain, disagreements over the not this, over other things, is common. These disagreements are woven into the history of all churches for 2,000 years. And this will be true until Jesus comes back because, number one, churches are filled with sinners. Maybe you're here for the first time today and you know we're a bunch of good-looking people and you didn't know if we're sinners or not. I'll just tell you, we're a bunch of sinners. That's one of the reasons that we'll have disagreements over opinions. The second reason that churches will disagree over opinions. Disagreements over opinions give churches the opportunity to show that Jesus is more valuable than my opinion. Disagreements in churches are opportunities to show Jesus Christ has the power to keep us together. That's why God allows disagreements in churches. How do we disagree to the glory of God? Let's read this together. Let's read this passage together. Keeping in mind the meat eaters, the veggie eaters, the meat eaters are the strong 
in faith is what Paul says, the strong in faith. They've correctly applied the, the sacrifice, the redemption and sanctification of Jesus. They've correctly applied that to their dinner table. Paul says, you, you meat eaters are the strong in faith. The veggie eaters are the weak in faith. Keeping that in mind, Paul has already said the strong in faith are right. Let's see what he says about our differences of opinions. Chapter 15, verse 1. Big number 15 goes like this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches, the insults of those who reproached you fell on Me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grants you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome. Therefore, embrace one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Paul tells us in a church, meat eaters, veggie eaters, when a church is in disagreement, what do we do? How do we glorify God? When Christians disagree, we have an obligation, an obligation to disagree in a certain way. Obligation, a debt that's owed. Obligation, a moral duty. Obligation can be a must. We have, as Christians, we have a must when we talk about disagreeing. There's, there's something we must do when we disagree together. And this obligation is not to each other, though that can be a sense true. This obligation is to the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. It makes a difference, doesn't it? This obligation is to the King of kings and Lord of lords who came down and sacrificed Himself for us. That makes a difference, doesn't it? We have a moral duty. We have a debt. We have a must to God when you and I, when we disagree together. So what is this obligation? What does it look like? Two, two things. First thing, when we disagree, we have a duty to Christ. We have a must to Christ. We have an obligation to to Christ, to carry one another. Christians are obligated when we disagree, and even when we are right in our disagreement, we have an obligation to carry the burden of those who are wrong. Isn't that countercultural? Let's read verse 1 again together. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That is so counter my nature. That's so counter our culture. What do we call this culture? We call it cancel culture, right? Somebody says something we disagree with, we want to cancel them. We want to kick them out. 
And we think this is a new thing, but unfortunately, Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. And I've been in church for 35 years. I know for a fact churches have been doing this for 35 years. You disagree with me about opinions. I want to push you away. I want to cancel you. That's undoubtedly what's going on in this church. The meat eaters are trying to cancel the veggie eaters. The veggie eaters are trying to count, cancel the meat eaters. And so Paul is telling this church, we who are strong, he is part of this strong group. He says, we who are strong, the meat eaters, have an obligation to God to pick up, to lift up, to bear the failings of the weak brothers, the, meat, the, the veggie eaters. The strong has the obligation to lift them up. The strong has the obligation to put them on their shoulders. So apart, opposed to, to canceling them, to pushing them away, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. In fact, not even getting further away, when you disagree with somebody, get closer to them. That's fascinating. When you disagree in church, bring them in closer. That amazing? And that counter, I maybe mean, it's just my heart, but my heart goes, oh, I, that's awkward. I don't love that. That's what he says. That's hard. And it's hard to bear with people in this way. It's difficult because when we disagree and it kind of annoys me, when I pick you up and put you on my back. It's like I'm taking on that burden of that annoyance. You feel that? When I push them away, I could distance myself. But no, I feel that burden. That's hard. It's hard to bear the brunt of that disagreement in love and in patience. That's hard. And I lift you up and I put you on my back when I disagree with you. And we'll remember last chapter, verse 1, where Paul says, embrace one another, but not to argue over opinions. So I lift you up and I put you on my back when we disagree. Especially when I think I'm right. I lift you up, put you on my back, and not to straighten you out. Not to say, come here, come here, come on. Come with me, I'll embrace you, but I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. Not for that reason. We lift them on our back, not to straighten them out, not to argue over opinions, but out of obligation to God to build each other up. Bearing with one another in this way is difficult. That's why it's called bearing with one another. That's so why it doesn't say when you disagree, go home, sit on your lazy boy. I can do that. That's easy. Kind of wish that was in here, don't you? But he said, instead, he says, no, no, no. Don't go home. Don't sit on your lazy boy. Don't cast them off. Don't avoid them. Go. Embrace them. Lift their weakness on your back as if it was your own. And for this church in Rome, that looked like this. At a church lunch, don't bring meat. Yeah, you love meat. Yeah, it's a little bit of a burden. Don't eat meat around you. Yeah, that's what you're doing is you're taking that burden of somebody, somebody's weakness telling you what you can and can't eat. Yeah, that's a burden. You take that burden and you put it on your back. When we disagree, 
Not only that, we, we also have an obligation, especially when we disagree, to work towards the pleasure of those who disagree with us. Isn't that countercultural too? Not only are we called to lift the burdens up and say, okay, fine, but we're called to work for their good. Work towards their, not, not, not just good, work toward their pleasure. And we go back to Rome, we could see how this would work, right? We are having our, our, our church family lunch. And, and every time you brought chicken, this group over here, the joy would get sucked out of the room. No, work for their pleasure. Know that when you, when you bring veggies and you skip out on, a, on meat for one meal during that week, know that you're bringing them pleasure. You're bringing them joy. That's a good thing to work for the joy of others. Paul says, not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I am obligated to God when we disagree not to bring you undue suffering. You're a child of God. And one of the primary ways God's work, God works for your pleasure is through a church family. Isn't that amazing? One of the primary ways God's work, God works for your pleasure is through your church family. Okay, those are the obligations. Obligation to take on the burden of the weak. Obligation to work for the pleasure of those that you disagree with. Pretty, pretty clear. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. But anytime we talk about things that we should do, we, we need to ask what our motivation is. Why do we do these things for God? Our motivation to this obligation is this. Jesus Christ did not please Himself, but in joy He fulfilled the pleasure of God the Father by bearing our sufferings, sins, and deficiencies on the cross. Why am I willing to bear with you in your weaknesses? Why should I be willing to work towards your pleasure? Because Jesus does that. Our motivation for these things is not out of fear that God's going to strike me down if I don't. It's not out of self-righteousness that I, I want to be a good Christian. That's not the motivation for this. The motivation for this is I see Jesus do that. And Jesus has captured my heart. Why wouldn't I want to do these things? Why wouldn't I want to imitate Jesus if I see Him doing this? That's how much Jesus has captured my heart. Motivation number one, we want to imitate Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who we owe everything to, who did not seek his own pleasure, but sought the pleasure of God the Father. Romans 15.3 goes like this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Reproach means insult. And what Paul is doing, Paul is quoting Psalm 69 here, 
which is a prophecy about Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus says the, the insults, the reproaches of those who insulted you fell on me. Think about this. The totality, the totality of Satan and mankind's insult towards the triune God fell on Jesus Christ as He hung on the cross. Every insult mankind and Satan has levied against the triune God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all the insults that has gone towards God. How many is that? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, do we go a day without insulting the triune God? I think about it. Jordan, you're going to say that about that person with the breath I gave you to live with? The insult of the cross is infinite. Jesus Christ, God with flesh, the righteous one, perfect in all his ways, creator and sustainer of the universe, glory like a bla- like the blazing sun was nailed to a cross like the worst criminal. Insult. He was humiliated. Hung naked to the cross for hours. Think about the humiliation. He was spit upon. He was mocked by murderers and thieves and the self-righteous and sinners. We hurled insults at the King of Kings as He hung naked, dying to a tree. I get offended when somebody cuts me off in traffic. Jesus was hung with the wood from a tree. The tree of which He created with a word. He was hung with that wood. Jesus Christ was hung with the nails made with the minerals Jesus created inside the earth when He created the world. Jesus created those minerals knowing that they would make the nails that would hang Him to the cross. you believe that? Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, hung on a cross like a criminal on a hill that He raised up from the earth. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, was mocked with lungs that He knitted together in a mother's womb. He was mocked with breath that He gave from His grace. He was prodded down the street to the cross like a lamb led to be slaughtered by soldiers 
who will pass out at the sight of a single angelic soldier in the army of the Lord. You imagine that insult of poking him with spears and get going like a lamb to be slaughtered. Jesus knowing that every single one of these soldiers that acted so tough would faint if they saw one messenger of the Lord. And the messengers of the Lord tremble at Jesus. He bled for and died for men and women like me whose own righteousness is like filthy, stinking rags. The God of life gave Himself over to death. And death is a curse of sin. The insult is unimaginable. And yet, and yet, knowing it is coming, since before the foundation of the world, knowing that He would die on the cross, knowing the insult that was coming, He did not seek His own pleasure, but He sought the pleasure of the Father. We like to think about the Garden of Gethsemane in this, and Jesus saying, knowing the cross is coming, He said, Lord, Father, if there's another way Take this cup from me. Cup being the wrath of God. That's, that's the image. All throughout Scripture, cup is the wrath of God. So take this wrath of God. Take, take, take your wrath away. If there's any other way. But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that amazing? Hebrews does a great job of, of showing us this, this the Son pleasing the Father, not Himself, in this grand insult that is the cross. He said, the author of Hebrews says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I have said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. And then the author continues. Do you see the picture of this? Jesus talking to the Father. Father, I know that in in sacrifices of animals and and all these, these ritualistic righteousness, You do not take pleasure. Instead, You have prepared a body for Me. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this, or chapter, chapter 11 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 12.2 Father, I know out of all these things going on at the temple, you have found no pleasure. Those things cannot bring men and women to righteousness before you. So in your pleasure, Jesus says, you have prepared a body for me. The one true sacrifice. The only sacrifice that will bring men and women to righteousness before God. Not by their own actions, but through faith 
in me. It says, you have prepared a body for me to take pleasure in this sacrifice. And then the author of Hebrews says, and enjoy Christ, endure the cross. Enjoy, and the joy of what? Then the pain of the nails? No, enjoy of doing the will and pleasure of God the Father. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so Paul looks at this church being divided and he says, if the one, if the only person who ever lived, if the only one who truly deserved pleasure, if he did not seek his own pleasure, are we too good to give up our pleasure for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we too good to lay down our pleasure and pursue your pleasure in the imitation of Jesus and for the glory of God? No. We have an obligation motivated by our picture of Jesus who laid down his pleasures for us and for the pleasure of God the Father to save sinners. Motivation number two. Christ Jesus did not please Himself, but in joy He fulfilled the, fulfilled the, pro, the pleasure of the triune God by bearing all our sufferings, sins, and deficiencies on the cross. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you bear one another bur- uh, bear one another's burdens as we see Christ do it. Therefore, because of all these things, therefore, be- embrace one another as Christ embraced you. How did Christ embrace you? He lifted every single burden from your shoulders. He's carrying them all. Christ welcomed me by carrying my burdens. So welcome one another by carrying their burdens so the idea is this jesus welcomes me carries me who's wrong in this relationship i am in this relationship jesus is carrying me we have disagreements my goodness do we have disagreements and he is always right who should be the frustrated one in this situation jesus And yet, I'm wrong. And he carries my burdens. And yet, I am frustrating. And he carries my burdens. And yet, I still sin. And he carries my burdens. And yet, I seek my own pleasure so often. And yet, he carries me. Can't we bear with one another because we see it in Christ? Surely, Isaiah 53, surely he has Born our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. He himself, first Peter two, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt, He has taken on your record of debt. This He set aside, nailing it to 
the cross and He died for all. Christian, He has taken your death on His shoulders. He's taken your death on His shoulders. Death will not swallow you whole. For Christians, I love this quotation, Christians aren't killed, they're planted. Are you with me? Why? How does that work? Because when you die, you die to a new life. A resurrection of the best life. He has borne your death on the cross. Christian, He has taken your sorrows on the cross. He has borne your grief on the cross. He has taken your sins on the cross. He has taken your bad opinions on the cross. All of them He has taken on His back to the cross in imitation of Him. May that capture our hearts. May we realize what Jesus has done for us in the Gospel. And may we never say, I'm going to cast you off for, the th- for your failings and your weaknesses. May we never say that because we have such a picture of the Gospel. And we say, how? How could I push anyone off? Look what Christ has done for me. It can be said that everything bad about you, Christian, Jesus bears on his shoulders. So bear with one another in our failings. And then Paul anticipates maybe a question from the Gentile believers. Okay, remember, you got Jewish believers who are the weak in the faith, who have those, the failing in this case. We can't eat meat. And Paul calls the the strong in faith, the ones who know that we can eat meat, that we can have that freedom in Christ, he, he calls them to lay down their freedoms and their pleasures to pursue the pleasures of this group and to take on their burdens. Paul calls them to do that. These are Gentile believers. And Paul anticipates, I believe here Paul anticipates an objection from the Gentiles. But wait a minute, Paul. I'm a Gentile, I'm a Roman, I'm a meat-eating Christian. The guys that you are quoting are from the Old Testament. That's, that's from the Old Testament. We're the church. You're quoting something out of the Old Testament for us now. Why should I believe that that now applies to me? Can you see that objection? Especially when it's taking away something I really like, right? I, I kind of will bristle up at that anyway. And so you can see the, the Paul, what, you're quoting this. How, how do I know that applies to me? Why, why can't we be under something new? Why can't we say the, the weak have to bear with the strong? Why, why do we take Psalms, the Psalms, written hundred, hundreds of years before the church in Rome existed? Why, why do we take that for us now? Let's read verse 4 together. Where does this motivation come from, Paul? He said, these are my motivations. Where do they take root? Verse 4, For whatever was written in, in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Churches are hopeless to stay unified if we do not take Scripture seriously. Are you with me? 
There's a lot more to that. There's a lot more that can be said about churches not taking Scripture seriously. But one thing out of this passage we see, if a church does not take the Bible seriously, there's going to be no church. There's going to be split. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be looking down my nose at the meat eaters. going to be despising the veggie eaters if we don't take Scripture seriously. Where's this motivation come from, Paul? Why should I imitate Christ? Why should I do this? He says, all Scripture was given for our instruction and brings us endurance and brings us encouragement, which brings us hope. All Scripture. There is one source for discovering the motivations for holy living. One source. There is one source for discovering our motivations to stay unified. And that is the Word of God. If we don't have this book at the center of everything that we are doing, we will split apart. Are you with me? All other motivations will fail. Well, maybe I'll want to lay down my fork and my chicken if I feel really nice towards you, if I feel really warm and fuzzy, maybe that's, let's do it this way. Maybe that's your motivation for me. Say, man, I really like this Jordan guy. He's really, I, I just really like, I got these warm, fuzzy feelings toward him. I just like him. Sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depend. My motivation will be my feelings for Jordan. That's why I'm going to put down the fork. Folks, that's going to last about five minutes. Sit next to me at lunch. You're going to lose those warm, fuzzy feelings toward me. If that's our motivation, to love one another, to lay down our pleasures for one another, to bear each other's burdens, that will not last. Well, I've thought really deeply about all these things. I've meditated out in the woods. I've, uh, we, our motivation to love one another is laws or mandates or fear or self-righteousness. Any other motivation to lay down our pleasures for one another, bear with our weaknesses with one another, all other motivations will be lost. But God has spoken. God has revealed Himself to us in these pages. Not in your feelings. Not in somebody's deep thoughts. He has revealed Himself here. He has revealed the Gospel to us here. God has revealed Himself and what He requires of us and how He saves sinners here. The Word of God is our instruction for life. He says this is given to us in the past to inform us, to instruct us. He says this book produces endurance. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because you dealing with all my failings takes endurance. Doesn't it? Don't you shake. Don't you nod your head. Doesn't it? Yes, it does. You bearing with one another takes endurance. And endurance comes from this. Why? Because we see Jesus endured the cross for us. We see Jesus enduring foolishness 
Don't you love reading about the disciples and all the times they frustrated Jesus? That makes me feel better about myself. Jesus endured with the failings of the early church. This produces endurance to obey Scripture in the face of suffering, frustrations, my flesh, and everything else in the world telling me not to obey. When I obey, that produces endurance. Obey obey this instruction, Paul says, and that will produce in you, Roman church, endurance, the endurance to last together. Just as preparing for a marathon includes difficult training, weightlifting, and diet to produce the endurance necessary, difficult obedience to Scripture produces muscles in our faith that help us remain steadfast. So Paul's saying, Roman church, after bearing with one another in these disagreements, when you bear with one another for a year of not eating meat, a year of not eating meat, you will be more, you'll be stronger in your faith. You will have more endurance to stand. You will be more mature in the faith if you obey that scriptural indictment. The Word of God produces endurance. The Word of God produces encouragement. We don't go away from this because this is our source of encouragement. We read in here that He, Jesus, will bring me to perfection. That should encourage us. We read in here that through Jesus we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. That is encouragement. We read in here that my sins have been separated from me as far as the east is from the west in Christ. That brings encouragement. We read that I will inherit all things in Christ. That brings encouragement. So he says, don't. He says, he says, all of this was written for us to produce endurance and encouragement, which produces hope. Produces hope in Christ. Where else can we find hope? Can you find hope anywhere else in all the world right now? Listen, doesn't matter who wins the election. We are hopeless without Christ. Are you with me? Where else can we find hope? We find hope in this because this points us to the good news of Jesus that no matter what the election comes, we have hope. No matter what the pandemic does, we have hope. Roman meat-eating Christian, don't find your hope in meat. Christian, don't find your hope in anything else. How do we find hope in Christ? You find hope in Christ by the revealed Word of God. That's why it's central to everything that we want to do around here. Because it shows us hope we have in Christ. I've talked to a lot of pastors the last few months. A lot. I mean, a handful. I mean, more than usual. I think there's there's a hopeless hopelessness epidemic in American churches right now. And I think Paul would say that's because the Word of God is not central 
in the life of our churches, and in the lives of believers. I'm afraid that the hopelessness that we feel in this time is is an indictment on the last 50 years of American church life. Because if Paul says this book is what produces hope, and if we find ourselves without hope, what's missing? This is missing. Seems to me churches have spent lots of time the last several decades preaching and emphasizing opinions. All up and down the spectrum, right? Churches preaching on, fighting about and preaching about and talking about style of worship, right? 10, 15 years ago, that was the big, it was called the worship wars. So all people talked about that opinion. When that takes center stage in church, this, does, this doesn't have center stage. When we make opinions the central point of sermons or of Sunday school lessons or of conversations around the dinner table, when opinions take the place of the Word of God, we will lose hope. We'll take hope in our opinions. Every sentence, let me just tell you what keeps me awake at night. Can I tell you what keeps me awake at night? Every sentence that I speak from this pulpit that lands on my opinions and not this book is a sentence I will have to give an account to God for. Every sentence I spend on opinion here is a sentence I don't spend on the good news of Jesus or the Word of God. Are you with me? And we're Christians. We believe the Word of God is what transforms lives. We believe the Word of God accurately, correctly, passionately proclaimed is what transforms lives, what changes people, and people make up communities, and communities make up nations. And we so often say, our country's going down the tubes. Why? One of the main reasons is this book is not taking center stage. When we ask ourselves why we have so much division in our country, why the morality of our country is is going away from God and towards who knows what, when we ask ourselves those questions, ask ourselves not why is it happening outside these walls. Of course it's going to happen outside these walls. Ask ourselves why is it happening inside the churches? Why when, when Christians make up the huge percentage of this nation, why is this happening to this nation? When we call ourselves a, a Christian nation, why is this happening? Because churches have started stop, uh, because churches struggle to keep this central. Can I tell you we, we have a big problem. Legionnaire Ministries, along with Lifeway Researches, did a study and they found 30% of evangelicals say Jesus was not God. 30% of evangelicals 
reject that essential Christian belief. When we want to ask why bad why our nation is in trouble, when we want to ask these questions, that's a good place to start. How in the world have a third of evangelical Christians rejected the divinity of Jesus? How does that happen? We don't preach and teach and study the Word. So Paul tells this Roman church, motivation to love one another, please one another, the motivation comes from this. He says, when this brings endurance, this brings encouragement, this brings hope. This is the source of all those things for us because it is God's breathed communication to us. He says, don't go away from that. And finally, I'm going to end with this. Finally, motivation number four. The last five words of this passage. What's our motivation? If we welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. When we pursue our opinions, freedoms to eat meat and the like, when we pursue our pleasures, when we pursue a church unified in anything outside of Christ, what we are doing is glorifying ourselves. Are you with me? You can see that happening around the lunch table at church. I'm going to eat meat because it's my right. You can't stamp on this freedom. You're just weak in the faith. I'm going to eat. What are we doing? We're glorifying ourselves. We're seeking to show ourselves and the world how valuable we are. But, when sinners seek to imitate the sufferings of Christ on behalf of other sinners in their church, Jesus looks glorious. When sinners like me seek to imitate the sufferings of Christ on behalf of sinners I disagree with, when I do that, I don't look glorious. Jesus looks glorious. When the saved lay down freedoms for the pleasure of their brothers and sisters, only God can make that happen. And He gets the glory. The world looks at us like freaks when we disagree and yet we bear one another's burdens. They look at us like freaks when I want to lay down my pleasure so you can be built up. The world looks at us like freaks. The world looks at us like one of them The world looks at us like one of them when we disagree and cast others off in bitterness. They say, oh, they're one of us. They will think we are freaks when we lay down for one another, but many in a world filled with riots and protests and shootings and pandemics and masks and opinions and laws and mandates in this environment for us to lay down our pleasures for one another. The world will see that and many will say, if that happens in that church, there must be something to this Jesus guy.
if that church suffers and works toward the pleasure of those they disagree with, there must be something to this Jesus guy. Everyone can argue. Everyone can be disunified. Everyone can cast each other off. It takes the Gospel to unify. It takes the Gospel for men and women to work towards the pleasure of those they disagree with. And that makes God look glorious. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Do you see and do you understand that Jesus has bore your burdens? Do you understand that everything that you go through in your life, everything that that is weighing you down, your sins, your disagreements, your frustrations, your insecurities, all those things that Jesus has has come and He scooped them up, put them on His back. And He doesn't want you to worry about them anymore. He has nailed them to the cross. Do you realize that? Do you realize that God in His mercy and His grace, has purchased you with the blood of Jesus. And you're now a son or daughter of the Most High God. Do you realize that? He loves you. He loves you. And He loves your church family. May we understand His love for us And may His love for us motivate us to love each other, to embrace each other as He has embraced us. And may God use this church to glorify Himself with the people out there, especially when we disagree and yet we love each other.